this past week, I think, on TV has just emphasized to us how life can change like that, can't it? Uh, for those who have survived the tragedy in Japan, life has changed beyond recognition in an instant, in a moment in time. I guess for some of us, uh, that's happened in different ways. There's been events in life which have changed our lives beyond recognition. There have been events which have shocked us. There have been events which have uh, just captured us. Uh, it was only really in 2004 which, when the word tsunami entered into our vocabulary. <laughs> but we know it well now, don't we? And we've seen it again during these past weeks. But even more than that, I think it brings us to that stark reality that in an instant, uh, for all that we might be getting on with life and doing stuff in life, in an instant, the reality of life and death and questions of eternity can just sweep in, literally overpowering us and facing us with realities. Paul was writing to a church, a fledgling church in Philippi, who were going through all sorts and were about to go through even more questions and experiences and challenges as the, the incredible force of the uh, persecution of the Roman Empire was about to be unleashed on those who believed in Jesus. We, we've, got to, uh, we've got to keep that in mind, I think, as we look at lots of the parts of the Bible. It concludes with the book of Revelation, which talks a lot about uh, powers and authorities uh, standing and challenging the, uh, the ultimate authority of Jesus. Uh, and it's encouraging us to say, what happens? It's challenging us to say, what happens when the unstoppable, in human terms, sweeps over us? It is as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was thousands of years before, uh, when many faced uh, issues. Uh, right the way through, the, one of the, the very core identities of being a human being is that issues in this world force us to ask questions. Life, death, eternity... What is there beyond that moment when our eyes close, when eternity sweeps in? Is there nothing? Is there more? That is the question. And what Paul says as we look at this opening, uh, the opening uh, verses in chapter 3, Paul says to those who are uh, f coming to terms with a new identity, believing in Jesus, he says now, what is it that is going to assure you of your future? On what is your foundation built? He opens this chapter, although there weren't chapters in the original letter. 
They're just helpful ways for us to to see the, the letter broken up. He says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He says to this uh, fledgling church, and and in that way I think it's really applicable for us, we're not a fledgling church in one sense because uh, the church has been established in this country now for uh, a thousand or so years and uh, and in one sense we are a continuation of the church for the past 2,000 years, yet this is a new group of people gathering together in this way. Some of you are even now just right at the very, very beginning of faith. What happens when the unstoppable in human terms hits your life? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. What does that phrase say to us? It says this, your strength is not in you, it's outside of you. Rejoice in what? In your ability to keep going as a Christian? In your good stuff? In the way that you've lived? In the decisions that you've made? Rejoice in you? No. Rejoice in Jesus, Christ, the Lord, the one who has come into this world, who has now become for us the absolute foundation and pillar of strength in our lives. That, uh, for 21st century uh, thinkers, is strange. If you look at what's being sold on the bookshelves in airports, there's probably, there's probably a rack full of self-help books. Everywhere we go, we're encouraged to, uh, to find help and strength inside, aren't we? Everywhere we go, we're encouraged to say, you, you know, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. The reality is, and the, the reality from many opportunities and, and experiences of sharing time uh, and working with people is that, yes, I understand that we can, we can be helped to some extent, but ultimately, when the final great challenges come in, inside isn't strong enough. We've got to look outside. Where do we look? Paul says you've got to look at the, the reality that God has come into the world. In Jesus, rejoice in that truth. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, it seems a strange thing, doesn't it? He says, uh, having said rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you, to repeat them again and again, rejoice, 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 in the Lord, in the Lord. You know, I was with you and I was talking about this. I'm writing to you now. I'm saying the same thing. For me to say it again and again, It's not a trouble to me. It's for your good. Why does he say that? Why does he say, I'm going to repeat it, and it's for your good that I keep repeating it? Uh, Because there's some stuff that we need to hear again and again. We need to be reminded of it. Hear it again. Be reminded of it again. Uh, Because life just erodes our, our thoughts, doesn't it? You know, stuff hits us. It just erodes away. A bit like the waves just gently coming in, just break away at the foundations of the, of the cliff. And then suddenly when the tsunami comes in, or even when the high tide comes in, the spring tide, 
those bigger waves, because the smaller waves have chipped away at the bottom, the big waves come in and the cliff falls away into the sea. So he's saying, look, there's stuff that you need to keep on hearing again and again. You might have been coming along to to the church for some time now. You might have been a Christian for years and years and years. Let me tell you, on the authority not of my thinking, but of what God's word says, it is a good thing to be reminded of some stuff again and again and again. Because I know and you know what life does to us. Just chips away, doesn't it? Washes away at the foundations. That's why it's a good thing to establish ourselves into a community of God's people, a church. It's why it's a good thing for us to establish ourselves into a smaller group so that, so that those waves that are kind of clattering away at the foundations, at the same time as the waves clattering away, there is the work of the Spirit of God through his word, which is patching up the foundations all of the time. And we're encouraging each other and rebuilding and strengthening so that when the spring tide wave comes in, the cliff doesn't fall down. That's why he says, I'll repeat it again and again. That's why it's important for us to commit ourselves. And you say, I've heard this. I've got this. I understand it. You know, I've ticked the box on that. I know what that means. I've kind of got that bit of, you know, the, the message of the Bible. Don't need to hear it anymore. I'll tell you now, we do need to hear it. By personal experience, the times when the cliff starts falling away is when we've forgotten stuff that we should be remembering. So Paul is really happy to say, I'll tell you again and again and again, don't look inside yourself for strength. Rejoice in the Lord. This one, this Lord who is previously described in chapter 2 where he said, this Lord is the one who has left everything in heaven and has come into this world. And then now, from that, we can find hope in him because having come into this world, having died on a cross, he is now living again by rising from the dead. That is hope. Now that says, I'm going to tell you again and again that you should rejoice in that because that says when the tsunami, not the spring tide, When the tsunami comes in and hits you and maybe takes the final breath from your body, from my body, when those final breaths are taken, where is my hope? Where is my confidence? I don't know what the final uh, breaths of my life are going to be. But by God's grace, I would love at this point in time to be able to think, that the final words might be rejoice in the Lord. Because at that moment, what else is there? And yet at the same time, flip it round the other way and say, wow, at that moment, to be able to say that, that's bigger than anything that we can possibly ever see in this world. So Paul is saying, I want you to continue to remember 
that rejoicing in something outside of you no less than God himself in the world is your foundation for the future. Now he goes on to say, now I want you to be warned. He says to this young church, I want you to be warned because there are, as he puts it, now one of the great things about the Bible is you see the, the reality of the characters who wrote the Bible, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, you see something of their true character coming out. You see different writers, different styles, different approaches. Now, Paul just, he doesn't hold back here. Right now, I want you to be careful because there are dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. (laughs) That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? I want you to be careful because there are those who are, well, dogs in the ancient world, particularly for, for those who had a kind of a historical pattern of the Jewish mind. One of the, the, the terrible things about dogs in the mindset will be they would just eat on, on carrion out in the field and, you know, they, they touch dead stuff and then, in fact, Jews would have called all of us who are not Jews dogs. That, that's, that's what we would have been considered. That we're with the dogs because we're not part of this, this inner thing. And then and Paul says, now, be careful. Because there are those who are going to come along to you as this new church and say, the stuff that you need to do. Guys, the stuff that you need to do to be a Christian, uh, to be a true follower of the historical God of the Bible, you've now got to be circumcised. Now that isn't... That is not going to happen to us in this church. We don't need to worry that that is a danger to us. There is nobody going to come along to us and say, you're you're only a real Christian if you get circumcised. But I, I think there is a relevance here because there are those who would come along and say, the Christian faith is about this and this other stuff. And this stuff is about what you do. Paul says, don't ever think that your faith is based on Jesus and what you do. Now, now let's have a look at how he explains this because it's, I think it opens a little window for us. He says, now, there are those who would see this progression of the, the story of the Bible. Uh, quick diversion. Here's a quick diversion. What's the story of the Bible? Uh, it starts right at the very beginning with people in relationship with God. It's a wonderful picture that's established right at the very beginning. People who are made in the image of God speak with God. And it's a wonderful picture. Everything is perfect. There is resolution. There is no strife. Uh, it's just a, It's like a place that we want to be. Our culture kind of looks to that and says, that will be a great thing. You say, how does our culture look to that? Take a view of the film Avatar. What's that? Those of you who've seen Avatar, what's it all about? It's about uh, this kind of mechanistic, self-centered world uh, of the human beings who have gone off to this other planet uh, to mine the goods of a perfect, peaceful world. And it's, it's creating this kind of argument. This is the world that we now live in. 
the kind of sappers and the self-centeredness, and yet these live in this perfect world of, of peace and tranquility. So even deep down in our kind of psyche, we're saying there's got to be something good about a world which is filled with peace. Now, I really don't believe that the Bible is all about eight or nine foot blue people <laughs> walking around like Avatar, for those of you who've seen it, and everybody else goes, well, what's that? It's not like that, but it is a world which is in perfect peace. And then at the end of the Bible, we've got another picture, which is a world of perfect peace, a world of resolution, a world where suddenly we are not striving against nature, we are at peace with nature. What breaks down at the very beginning of the Bible? There are three breakdowns. There is the breakdown of the relationship of people with God, first and foremost. And when that happens, there is a breakdown of the relationship with human beings in the world around them because all of a sudden we're told that everything that we're going to do is going to be hard work. And then thirdly, there is the breakdown of relationships between us. Three crises. The end of the Bible, Revelation, points us to a future which says all of that gets resolved. Now the simple question is this. If that's the story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, how does God get there? And this gives us a little window into part of that process. Because Paul goes on to say, and he says, now, there are those who expect and demand circumcision. He's taking them back now to the Old Testament. Part of the Bible where God's people were circumcised. They were marked physically as uniquely part of the family of God's people. And he says this, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I've been circumcised. But more than that, it's not just that I've been physically circumcised, but I've been in that mindset. I've lived as a Jew, he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, look, I lived absolutely in accordance with all of that law stuff in the Old Testament. And now I live free and rejoicing in Jesus. I no longer have to live under that law stuff in that way. I do not have to be, although we can't reverse being circumcised, but I do not have to now demand of all of you that you are circumcised. We are now living in a new world in one sense. There is a shift that has taken place in the way that God is dealing with his people. So here we have way back Genesis, world that's made that's perfect, crisis. God starts relating to people again. Back at the far end we have a reconciled world and Jesus right there is a shift point. But what about all of this stuff? Isn't that a question for us? What about all of that law stuff? What's Paul talking about? For those of you who are new to the Bible, it's really important that we understand some of this because I also think it answers one of the questions that many people have as a real problem with the Bible. Paul is saying this. 
I lived as a fully-fledged, card-carrying, faithful Jew. I lived absolutely according to the law. I did all of the stuff that was required. But now I realize that Jesus has changed the world. And relationship with God is different. Let's go back. Let's take ourselves back in time and understand what is this law stuff about. It's about the process of God speaking to the world. Re-engaging with a world which is lost and broken. Let me take you back. Let me read you a shocking verse in Leviticus. And this, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower, even if you are a Christian, you might have a real problem as we hear this. What do we do with a verse like this? Somebody in Leviticus has sinned against the law. They've blasphemed. What does God say do? Bring out of the camp the one who cursed. And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Wow. That's the law. That's the law. Back there. It is not easy, according to the Old Testament, to get close to God, is it? There are demands placed on us to be acceptable to God, which quite honestly we're not able to keep. That's what it says back there. It is not easy. Let me read you another part of the Bible. Leviticus again, chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron... Each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Here's the law. And here we are in 21st century with this book in front of us, and we're asking the question... Quite simply, Paul is saying, I I used to live in accordance with that. Now I live in something which is beautiful and wonderful. It's called the grace of Jesus. But this is one Bible. What does it say about all of that stuff? Does it mean that God got it wrong? Absolutely critical that we get a grip on this. I think one of the amazing things, if God is going to take us from that tragic situation of separation with him back to relationship with him, he's got to speak to the world. And one of the amazing things that we see is that God is willing to speak to the world in the language that the world understands at that particular point in time. Oh, there were lots of gods in the Old Testament, people worshipping all sorts of, uh, of, of statues or forms of nature or whatever it might be. But like every generation throughout the history of the world, 
all of those gods were domesticated. Those gods were controlled by people. We'll make a statue. We'll put it in a corner. We'll make a great big statue. And we'll, we'll, we'll worship that great big statue. Even, even the control of the sun, you know, it's so distant away that it can't actually do anything to us. We control our God. That's the world that God's people were in. And the living God of the Bible comes in and he says this. I am not a God who you can domesticate. I am not a God who you can control. It is not a light. It is not an easy thing. It is not a simple one, two, three steps for you to get close to me. I am an awesome God. I am God who is more pure than you can ever begin to understand. And when you come close to my purity, you will be destroyed. You will be burnt away. That is what I am like. And I will make sure that this world knows it by using a language which was understood at that time in the history of the world. That's the way people thought. And God is willing to communicate in the way that people thought, but at the same time to turn the world upside down by revealing himself as something different. I am not like other gods. You cannot control me. He's willing to reach out and to make himself known, and yet at the same time be different. Paul writes to his young apprentice Timothy, and he says this, The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen, or can see. To him be honour and dominion. He says that's what God is like. He is not somebody. You, you get it wrong. You'll be destroyed. Now that might sound terrible to your ears right now. You might be thinking. I don't want to know a God who's like that. I don't want to know a God who's, who's not loving. Who's not always a God of love who's not a God who's this kind of um, let me say it in a way which I hope this doesn't sound disrespectful but it's actually what lots of people think so I'm going to say it who's not some kind of sugar daddy in the sky who only gives good things no matter what we do that's what people think God should be like the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is not somebody who is just always going to pour out good stuff no matter what. It is not easy. But now let's have a look. What happens? What is the shift that takes place? Paul is saying this, look... If it relied on what we did, because if God is like that, 
We've got to do lots and lots of things to, to allow us to be accessible to him. I've got to keep the law. I've got to do all the things right and then he'll accept me. That's what it's all about. And that's what Paul is saying. There are those who are going to come along and they're going to say, you've got to do this and you've got to do this and you've got to be circumcised and you've got to keep that law and you've got to keep this law and you've got to do that, that, and that, and that, and that. And then God's going to accept you. I know Jesus is there, but do all of this stuff as well. Domesticate God. Suddenly, doesn't the power become ours? Because if we do all of the things, then God's got to accept us. We control God. He says, now, don't whatever you do fall into the trap of relying on what you do. Rejoice in the Lord. I was like that. But now I am one who worships Jesus in spirit and in truth. I am one who glories in Christ Jesus. So I, want to, I just want to ask the question now, how does that work in relation to all of the law stuff? What has Jesus done so that all of that is not a waste of time or a mistake by God? Because we are now living in history's terms the other side of the cross, aren't we? Jesus has now come into this world. We know it. We know the existence of Jesus. We know the claims of the Bible. How can we rely on Jesus and yet still see the other stuff in the Old Testament as relevant in the story of God's unfolding of his communication to this world? Who gets taken outside of the camp? The one who is offended God the one who has who, who's destroyed by fire the one who has offended God look at the, what happens to that blasphemer, the one who's cursed he's taken outside of the, 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 the camp and everybody stones him, he's killed listen to this shift what happens with Jesus That Friday morning, he's taken, and he's taken effectively in picture terms outside of the camp, taken outside of Jerusalem. And in picture terms, all of the judgment falls on him. He's stoned. He's destroyed by the wrathful fire of a father. He absorbs that. He, he finds that within him. Everything is channeled towards him. That's what makes Leviticus relevant to us today. Not because we have to keep all of the laws that are in there, but because Jesus has, has fulfilled them. Jesus came and he said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And I look at that and I say, because of what it says in the previous part of chapter 2, where it says that I can in some sense be in him, it looks like this. I'm the one who has blasphemed and cursed. 
I'm the one who's taken outside of the camp and destroyed. But I'm destroyed in Jesus. He's the one who is stoned. He's the one who bears the burning wrath of a father. The justice and and power of a God who sees iniquity and just destroys it in him. And that is the shift that takes place. Why do you think that all of those things in the Old Testament, all of those demands of, of killing people for this, that, and that, and that, all of those things that make God so unapproachable are not relevant today because of Jesus? That's what makes sense of the Bible. That's what makes me able to say, I can hold this book up and say, I, I can see the problems with the Old Testament. I can see why people find it difficult. But if we fit it into this overall structure of God's communication to this world, it makes sense. And Jesus is destroyed. The writer to the Hebrews says this. Now listen. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke in the past at many times and in many ways. He spoke by the law of Leviticus. He spoke in many ways, but now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Isn't that amazing? He says to you and to me now all of that which is problem, all of that which is an offense, all of that which demands in the face of God's law that you be taken outside of the camp and destroyed, it's channeled to Jesus. It's amazing news. It means that I can rejoice in him because when that that sweep of the reality of life which results in death sweeps over me and I stand before God who will be my judge in Christ. I know that eternity can be mine not because of what I have done in the flesh but because of what he has done in the flesh. Isn't that remarkable? I hope we've done two things this afternoon. I hope maybe what we've done is begun to address some of the problems which many people have with the Old Testament, fit it into the structure of God's communication to this world, and then see the privilege of being this side of the cross, And being able to say, because of what he has done, I can know eternal life. No wonder, Paul says, I will rejoice in him.